Hello and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kupchand, and I am incredibly excited to have today's guest, Fidel Amache Owusu. Um, every single time I speak to Fidel, I come away with just such a shocking number of interesting facts, but also core pieces of context as it relates to how the economics, politics, geoeconomics, and geopolitics of the region of Africa kind of come together and how they've developed over the past couple of centuries, but how they're kind of going to continue to develop over the next decade. Um, a bit of context on Fidel. So Fidel is currently an associate at the Conflict Research Consortium for Africa. He is also an incredible writer on all things related to geopolitics, geohistory, and sorry, geoeconomics and history um, on LinkedIn. Some fantastic pieces. I highly recommend following him there. Um, and he also has significant experience coordinating research uh, on behalf of the government of Ghana. So he has some fantastic insight into the operations of uh, the government of Ghana and its uh, organization. With that in mind, um, we will say hello to Fidel. And we'll kind of start off, I guess, with perhaps the most pertinent thing that's going on right now, which is we've entered, you know, 2023 and Ghana's going through what seems to be uh, the early innings of a sovereign debt crisis. And with that in mind, I'd like to say firstly, hello to Fidel. And second, um, if Fidel wants to kind of start off with sharing a bit about what is kind of happening in Ghana right now, what is the current state of, of Ghana and its kind of sovereign debt um, situation? Hello, Fidel. Mm, hello, um, uh, Christian. Um, I'm really humbled by your introduction. And, and I thank you for this very um, rare opportunity that yeah, you have given me. Um, Christian, um, Ghana at the moment is sitting on tenterhooks. Um, citizens are not happy. The government itself is battered by the economic um, misfortunes of the country. And investors are, do not know how to um, approach the country because then, then all rating agencies have rated the country very low. And it means that invest, investment in Ghana is jeopardized. And therefore, uh, many are affected and all sectors are affected currently. And if we were kind of getting into the, um, you know, for someone who's looking at the kind of history of Ghana for the first time, both politically and economically, um, in terms of its kind of economic structure, could you kind of give an overview of the basics of how kind of Ghana's economy and, and political structure are kind of set up? All right. All right. Um, Ghana is the first kind black African country south of the Sahara to gain independence. We know that Liberia was declared declared its independence in 1847. That was Liberia, and then but Liberia was not a typical colony as Ghana was. And in 1957 was when Ghana gained independence and became the first African country south of the Sahara to do so. Uh, actually, our first president really helped other countries to 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 gain independence, especially Guinea. Ghana in 1958 had to support Guinea with 10 million pounds to gain independence from France outside the French arrangements where it wanted its former colonies to belong to the French community. So Ghana has a very solid history in, 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 in Africa. Now, economically, Nkrumah set out to establish firms 
that would produce goods that Ghana would have imported. So that is what we usually call the import substitution industrialization. With that, basic commodities like uh, canned meats, um, shoes, um, matches, and what have you were produced in Ghana, textiles and all that. He set out to build an industrial base and he was very smart. He was able to um, get support from both the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc of the Cold War ideological divide. So Ghana has had a very huge dam in um, the Eastern region and then to, to supply uh, electricity and he built an industrial city close to Accra and a harbor. And these were things that were mainly supported from, from, from the United States. He built a whole lot of uh, transportation system and we kind of um, had a, 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 a shipping line that was supported by the Soviet Union and, and many things. The Chinese came to our aid in certain things. Western, uh, Western Europe, uh, West Germany particularly supported us in many ways, the Italians, the Japanese and all that. So from the onset, we had um, set out to be a self-sufficient country in terms of industrializing. Over time, this was affected when, um, I mean, there was a coup d'etat in 1966 and other regimes came in. A lot of things changed. And over time, it affected our industrial base. And that has led to currency fluctuations over time, um, inflation. And Ghana has, over the years, gone back to the IMF for fiscal discipline or fiscal support. And the current one that we have we, 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 we subscribed to last year was the 17th time that Ghana is going to the IMF ever since it gained independence. So wow. that has been it. Now, with the strata of the economy, um, largely the service sector is driving the economy. It used to be the agri sector, but now that is going down in the service sector. Communication, tourism transportation, education, and, and what have you. We have a number of Nigerians um, seeking education in Ghana, especially tertiary education is, 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 is one of the best you can get in the sub-region. We have a telecommunication, we have very robust telecommunication industry. And we have Vodafone, um, MTN, and other big um, multinationals uh, in the sector. Um, is one of the um, hubs, transportation hubs, in the sub-region, the, the Accra airport is one of the best you can find in the sub-region uh, or the West African region, and it serves uh, very uh, efficiently. And um, we have uh, very good, comparatively better routes. If you do, if you are comparing that with countries like Burkina Faso, Togo, and what have you, so uh, that has been the the the, the system. Interesting. One thing you mentioned uh, at the beginning, which is perhaps a side tangent, but I'm just very curious about, is you mentioned Ghana's role in um, essentially being a big brother to Guinea during um, that period of transitioning. Yes, yes, into independence. And um, one thing that a friend of mine has mentioned as it relates to Ghana is his kind of thesis was Ghana ought to be the first kind of, you know, post-industrial, fully industrialized um, region in the next 50 years that was his kind of thesis in um as it relates to kind of like african development and he had a kind of you know couple of reasons why but 
main kind of overarching narrative there was that the role that um, one kind of winner, so to speak, can play is they can kind of act as that main market for other nations to sell into on the kind of African continents. They can act as kind of like this support system and this kind of big brother. Um, are there any other examples of, you think, uh, nations that kind of can play that role other than Ghana or that are kind of heading towards that role, such as, such as Nigeria, like, do, in, in terms of kind of like, you know, supporting roles where a stronger state on the continent um, helps um, a, a state that's more nascent in its development, as opposed to external states from not not from the continent that are playing that role instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, even before I go to your your question, uh, Ghana uh, in the early nineties, um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, it was among the first countries to transition from autocratic rule or dictatorship to democracy. Ever since then, we've had successful elections, except that the last one was marred by some deaths. However, largely, Ghana has been democratic. And so it has become a diplomatic center and a center of stability in the sub-region. So when we are looking for stability, mostly people look at um, Ghana. Nigeria is a bigger market, but in terms of stability, people have often looked at Ghana, that um, your, your investment may be secure in the security sense and not necessarily the fiscal or the the, the economic sense, but then the security sense that you, you can plan ahead and all that. However, with your question, it is very true, and I've always argued that just like Germany, France, Italy, and the United Kingdom were leading the European Union to reach or led the European Union to reach where it has gotten to, the same way Africa should have states like that. Yes, we do. In terms of size, Nigeria has the biggest economy, the largest population with the biggest economy. That is Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Nigeria has, so, so by inference, it has the largest market you can find in Africa. Yet, internal differences and um, centrifugal or, or, or sub-states um, attrition are not allowing Nigeria to play the role it's supposed to play. So Nigeria is one of such countries. The next one is Egypt. Egypt has the second largest economy and the third largest population with very strong military and uh, some industry. However, Egypt for decades has seen itself as more of a Middle East country than an African country. And a lot of factors have played into this. We know uh, in the 70s, the Arab-Israeli war from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and the 70s, and how in 1978, the U.S. broke a deal between Egypt and Israel. Since then, Israel always looks east or to the Middle East than looking southward and westward, that is Egypt. So um, this has let it underplay its role or overlook its responsibility as a big brother in Africa. Again, we move to Ethiopia. Diplomatically, Ethiopia serves as a center in Africa. Ethiopia plays a very um, huge diplomatic role in Africa. And since the days of the OAU, Organization of African Unity, it has been the center of Africa. Addis Ababa hosts the African Union headquarters. However, Ethiopia is currently in a civil war. Until last year, when um, factions met in South Africa to start some negotiations, 
the country has been fighting and we don't know where this is headed. And uh, that is very unfortunate. Ethiopia has very huge population but, and a big market, but it's not helping. Now, one very sad one is DR Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. It has the fourth largest population. It has the second largest territory. However, and with so many ethnicities and population, I mean people. However, that country has never seen peace. And most important of all, it has abundant resources. The DRC actually was the source of the fuel that was used in creating the first atomic bombs the world ever saw in 1945. The atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima Nagasaki in August 1945 was actually fueled by uranium from southern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The country has cobalt, coltan, and most of the rare earth that the Silicon Valley uses to propel um, itself. But that country has never seen peace. We see ethnic conflict. And currently, there are extremists working in Eastern DRC, and we have M23 rebels, Tutsi rebels, allegedly sponsored by Rwanda in DRC, fighting the government. This is a very sad one. Now, South Africa. South Africa seems to be very stable and very industrialized. However, the, the current crop of politicians in South Africa have disappointed Africa. When in 1994, democratic rule returned to South Africa, people thought that it was going to lead the rest of Africa because apartheid had ended and that Africans now have a big brother to help them grow. Unfortunately, Christian, it did not materialize. Currently, the ANC and other parties within South Africa are more concentrated or more focused on fighting among themselves and the huge corruption in that country than looking beyond their borders and looking at Africa and the opportunity it offers and their um, chance to lead the continent. So these are the few examples I can give. Kenya is also another good uh, power coming up. But Kenya, because of its electoral violence in recent times, is not so much seen as a stable democracy, even though it is working really well. The last elections was not so uh, violent or was not violent as we've had in previous ones. So we think that Kenya is also um, um, coming up. And one other country we have to look at is Kodiwa, a neighbor to, to, to Ghana, and the number one producer of cocoa around the world. So largely, there are countries coming up. Uganda cannot over be, also be overlooked. Thank you, Christian. Fantastic. Um, so I, I appreciate that overview because I think that's something that uniquely you can share as it relates to this kind of bird's eye view of um, the differences and disparities and kind of you know lessons one can learn from one sub-region to the other, one sub-nation to the other. Um, with that in mind, if we were circling back to Ghana, we um, get to the, you know, 1990s and you mentioned kind of uh the, the, the coup that kind of happened if i'm not mistaken was was that when was it was that when there was a coup or was it earlier yeah the transition the, the early 90s the transition from dictatorship to democracy transition. Ghana was one of the leaders in africa okay during the time. Yes. and and so if you were to kind of give a history from the 1990s to now as it relates to how we get to the 
one, the sovereign debt crisis, and then we can kind of dig into the details of what the actual kind of substance of the sovereign debt crisis is and what the kind of current negotiations are. Um, if you kind of share uh, overview from the 90s to now, um, and then we can kind of get into uh, that substance. Okay. So um, before I come to the 19, early 1990s, I will have to talk about the 80s. In the 80s, Ghana went back to the Britain Woods institutions, the IMF and World Bank, to look for the structural adjustment program and um, economic recovery program. Now, it meant that most of the industries that were not working in Ghana had to be um, 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 undergo divestiture, and some of them had to be restructured in order to make them more profitable. In so doing, a lot of jobs were lost in the process. However, the economy was restructured, and it came back to the right fortune. Under um, His Excellency Flight Lieutenant Jerry John Rollins, he was, a, he was a military ruler. Now, in the late 80s, Ghanaians felt that no, they, have, they had to go back to democracy. So there was enough domestic pressure. And at the time, the Soviet Union was also collapsing. So the British institutions had attached liberal principles to economic aid. So if you wanted economic aid, the Western countries would tell you to go more democratic or be more liberal, make your system more open in order to get it. And Ghana really did so much uh, domestically to push this. And so when these conditionalities came in, we quickly transited from a democratic, I mean, from dictatorship to democracy. After the transition, um, the economic uh, progress, we, we, we've seen a lot of progress. Um, growth has been in the positives and it had been consistent. But later part of, or the latter part of the 1990s, Ghana had to go back to the IMF because uh, the fiscal um, health of the country was not the best. So Ghana went back there to take an IMF program. Now, after that, um, there was a transition from the main party, I mean, the ruling party to the opposition in early 2000. Um, not long after, the new government um, subscribed, subscribed um, to the highly industrialized poor countries, HIPIC, where Ghana's debts were cancelled by its creditors across the world. So most of Ghana's external creditors cancelled um, Ghana's debt in the 2000s. This gave us uh, enough breathing space to actually um, take more loans, restructure our domestic debt, and do other things that um, led to some progress. So all along, our growth has been consistent, growing. Now, in 2007, Ghana discovered oil in commercial quantities. And Christian, don't forget, all this while, Agri was leading agriculture. And Ghana, for, for a long time, has been the second largest producer of cocoa after Kodiko. And this... Um, there was a pause. There was a pause. No worries. Conti conti continue. Uh, I think it's still recording. Okay. Okay. So Ghana 
moved um, from an, an agrarian um, 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 economy to a more oil reliant one, beginning from 2010 and 2011. In 2011, uh, between 2010 and 2011, Ghana was the highest growing economy in the world, going beyond 14.5% of GDP. And this was mainly as a result of the newfound oil. And also, we did well with other sectors, especially with the extractive, extractive industry, um, with the uh, gold, bauxite, manganese, and other commodities doing very well at the international market at the time. It helped the economy to, to, to reach that height. And that was under Professor John Evans Atamos. And it was good. Now, later on, um, in between 2013 and 2014, Ghana was hit by energy crisis. Now, over time, we kept relying on the dam that um, Dr. Nkrumah had built in the 50s or in the 60s. And so that was not enough to supply um, Ghana with enough energy. So we built some thermal plants, but mainly we relied on the hydroelectric dam, and which was not enough. So in 2013 to 2014, we were hit um, devastatingly with an energy crisis, which, which was very difficult to surmount. By 2016, the government then had solved the problem. That notwithstanding, that government was kicked out because of, I mean, partly due to that energy crisis. However, it solved the energy crisis before leaving power. Now, the current government assumed office after winning the 2016 elections, assumed office in 2017. But even before that, the previous government, that was the last government between 2013 and 2017, had subscribed to another IMF program. This one was more domestically led. At the time, our debt to GDP was around 56%. 56 to 60%. At the time, Ghana went to IMF in 2014-2015. That was the debt-to-GDP ratio, 50, 50 to 60% thereabout. Now, with that, um, the policies that the government produced was backed by the IMF. It was transparently uh, done with uh, bipartisanship and multipartisanship political players from all political parties participated in the discussions that led to that IMF program. Fast forward in 2017, when the new government took over, um, a lot of things did not go right, right from the beginning. One thing that was uh, symptomatic or that was very obvious about what we, where we now find ourselves or that has brought us to where we now find ourselves was the triumphalism. You know, in Africa, um, politics is a zero-sum game. People win power, and it's like um, they are in control, and nothing stops them. Now, after taking power, the government set out to create one of the largest governments Ghana has ever seen. At a point, we had 125 ministers and deputy ministers. For a country the size of Ghana, that was worrying. 
We've had instances where the finance minister at the point had over 20 special assistants. And all these special assistants took the salary of deputy ministers. That is, apart from the 125 ministers and deputy ministers, we had one minister, being the finance minister, having about over 20 special assistants. I mean, that is unheard of. You have experienced that in this country. We've had state agencies having more than three and four deputy CEOs. And these are CEOs who take bigger salaries than some ministers of state. And these are all across. And Ghana being a developing country in Africa, government is a life in Ghana. So the private sector does not employ as much as the government does. The government is the single largest employer we have in Ghana, employing over 600,000 people. And much of revenue is used in paying the monthly remuneration of these public servants. With a huge government built, the public purse was trained. Again, there was so much corruption, or there has been so much corruption. If you check the corruption perception index from 2018 upwards, I mean, coming down to, to, to 2022, you realize that the corruption perception index kept getting worse over time. Corruption everywhere. We've had instances where investors have complained of people asking for bribes before processing their companies and firms that they would like to set, it up, set up. Then we've had so much profligacy. We have our president abandoning the official presidential jets and renting a very expensive one that paid thousands of pounds per hour from Luxembourg. Renting, I mean, dropping the official presidential jet and renting. And these are all things that have had a bearing on the domestic, I mean, pest or the public pest. So it means that the government kept borrowing for consumption. And what was the consumption? Huge government. The consumption is the presidential, in fact, as of 2017, 2018, the budgetary allocation to the presidency had ballooned to astronomical levels. Running to the billions of cities. When the highest before that was around 500 million Ghanaian cities. So, Christian, it means that the country has been under pressure from its own leaders. But one very important thing, and which parallels have been drawn with Sri Lanka, is the wanton and blatant nepotism in the country in recent times. We've had a president whose cousin was his bank ruler 
while he was in opposition. After he assumed office, the person he could appoint or the person, according to him, he saw qualified to take care of our finances or be to be the finance minister was his cousin, that very cousin who bankrolled his campaign. So from the word go, some of us have raised issues about some of these very unfortunate development. But as it were, the opposition has always had answers to questions like that. By, I mean, justifying it with, with maybe some Western education that the person has had and all that. But the, that is neither here nor there. Because now we are in an abyss, an economic abyss. Mm -hmm. And it looks like the, the, the future is not good. So nepotism. The president has his own cousin or nephew or another blood relation being his executive secretary. That is the official, that is more or less the hand of the president, also a cousin. We have another cousin being in charge of roads and highways. That means most of the contracts are going to be handled by him. And, and so on and so forth. Every sector of the economy is dominated by the president's relatives. And since independence, we've never seen anything like that. We've never seen anything like that. Right. And it means that the president has been very obstinate to even reshuffle his government. Even where some ministers are not performing, he's unable to reshuffle. And people have had issues with that question. Maybe I'll pass it for you to ask no, I, further questions. <laughs> I, I, I deeply appreciate that. And I think um, I've, I've jotted down a few things that I kind of wanted to flag here that I think are notable, mm. right? Mm. So mm. the first thing is regarding um, the day-to-day -day and the week-by-week -week as to which what you've kind of described as a sense of decadence has kind of entered the yeah. public sector. Um, I'm wondering, were there any Cassandra-like figures who are calling this out on day one? And I'm wondering, what is the strength of the type of uh, the, the, the strength of the types of institutions that can call that out and act as like a kind of pushback or feedback loop against this type of thing happening, especially when it comes to the budget? Um, just to give one piece of context here, I remember reading about I think the early 1900s, um, New York's New York City's way of doing their budget. And basically up until that time, they didn't really have a system for accounting for what their budget was. And it was only at that point that they introduced like the basics of what at the time weren't exactly computer spreadsheets, but were kind of you know, paper spreadsheets most likely um, to kind of understand how they're actually going about doing this. And so these are the kind of core innovations that allow you to have a more effective kind of public service. Um, another one that I'm very interested in right now is after 2008's crash, um, Joe Lonsdale, who's this venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, uh, was the founder of this company called OpenGov. And OpenGov essentially allows you to kind of see all these related government spending metrics for a region, but it also allows the governments themselves to kind of have a stronger accounting system for understanding what their kind of tax inflows will be over the next decade, understanding the different types of scenario analysis, but also to know when they're kind of going past certain thresholds of debt to GDP, etc. Um, I'm wondering, like, what does that infrastructure look like in Ghana right now? And it also strikes me that uh, because of the software using to record this, um, we're running out of time, but we will start with part two afterwards. But please, if you have like five minutes to answer this, and then we can kind of move on to the next section. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. The accountability or the transparency uh, structure of Ghana 
Um, the first one is the parliament. The parliament has oversight responsibility of budget, over budget. Now, um, if you come to Ghana now, in 2020 election, the last election in 2020, the good thing Ghanaians had was that they had a hung parliament. It means that the opposition is very strong in parliament. The opposition and the ruling government almost had the same number of parliamentarians in parliament. And so the speaker of parliament, the current speaker of parliament is actually a member of the opposition. And so um, since 2020, a lot of things have come up. It means that the opposition now has a, the strength to bring out, I mean, government and bring out most of these discrepancies in government and the, the corruption going on. Again, civil society organizations, and uh, this is not to preempt something, but before this interview, you had mentioned Bright Simmons. is, is one of the, 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 the um, outstanding civil society players in the system. And um, he and his organization, Imani Ghana, have come out with a lot of um, exposés and other um, issues, brought out a lot of issues that has brought the attention of the citizenry to whatever that is happening. We've also had um, institutions, I mean, um, academics also coming out and generally, the Ghanaian public is very active in terms of participation in politics. So we have social media um, 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 players and other uh, players around playing, I mean, very significant roles in coming out with some of these um, ills and some of these defects that has brought us this uh, 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 deep in, 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 the, in, the, in the economic abyss. Yeah. Interesting. And in terms of how you see the resolution for this taking place, um, one thing you mentioned in Ghana's history was the HIPC, the highly indebted, I think, you know, country. Um, yeah, the HIPIC, yeah. And I'm wondering, do you see um, an effective resolution or do you see this being very drawn out? Like, what does 2020 to 2020 um, to, to 2030 look like? What does the next decade look like in lieu of this um, sovereign debt crisis? Yeah, already... Already people are, okay, thank you, Christian. Already people are asking for death uh, uh, cancellation and relief from Ghana's external creditors. Like it happened in the 2000s under HIPIC or under the highly indebted poor country uh, status. Um, the, the government now is doing what it calls debt exchange, where domestic bondholders will have to postpone the maturity of their bonds. And even when it's, it is postponed, and it's going to be postponed to as far as 2030-something. And many people are not happy about this because uh, domestic bondholders in Ghana are generally made up of not so rich people, but people who have struggled and been able to gather something to, to buy bonds, uh, seeing it as the most secure way of investing their money. But now... They are, their monies have been locked and the finance minister is pushing for debt exchange where they are, the payment of such bonds or the maturity of such bonds will be pushed back. Some of them wouldn't live to see or to retrieve such monies and perhaps ma, 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 may have to pass it on to their, their, their nest of kin. So um, whichever uh, decision, no matter what, Christian, it looks like Ghana must resort to the hard way to resolve this because there is no free meal anywhere else. And I think that 
the idea that um, Ghana's debt will be cancelled overnight is far-fetched. I don't think it's, it's happening. But until then, the people are really not happy and there's so much suffering happening. Right. I'm wondering, um, are there any case studies of sovereign debt crises where there's been a significant change in institutional structure after the sovereign debt crisis that's led to kind of, you know, a sustained period of prosperity or the foundations for longer term prosperity? Because it strikes me that very often the uh, resolution is just enough to get out of that kind of initial gulf, but it's not enough to kind of catalyze any type of growth. Um, it strikes me that we have 10 seconds left in this call. So um, we can leave that for the next uh, section in this podcast. But uh, yeah, I, I look forward to getting us Wonderful. We yeah. are back now, Fidel and Krish, talking about the uh, sovereign debt crisis that's yeah. currently um, being figured out and shaped in Ghana cool. today. And Fidel and I were touching upon the question of what does or what could resolution look like to kind of bring back some sense of macro stability to the region and what some of the kind of tough constraints and decisions that will have to be made by participants in this will have to be. And so with that in mind, I'd love for Fidel to kind of share his thoughts mm. on what the kind of roadmap ahead looks like, what the different types of roadmaps or different types of agendas people are pushing forward may look like, and what he thinks the best kind of trade-off driven, uh, constraint driven resolution may be here. Mm. Um, first of all, um, I must say that this problem has been cyclical. And the reason being that whenever we go to IMF, and not only Ghana, in, in Africa, whenever we go to IMF we, we, and we get the respite or some space, we come back to doing the same things that took us there. And then we end up going back there. So it's cyclical. It, it, it moves. I mean, it's, it's something that we, 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 we always repeat and we still receive same results. Now, one thing that is very important, Christian, is the fact that governments should be in position to bear the consequences or to bear the burden of its previous decisions or pre decisions that has brought us here. Now, even as we talk about debt restructuring and the fact that the country is overburdened, the number of ministers that we had since 2020 are still in place. We have CEOs with the number of deputies still taking salary. So in circumstances like this, the first thing governments usually do is to show good faith and show commitment by reducing its size or to be seen to be bearing the burden of the, the, the economic downturn. But we are not seeing that in Ghana. In Ghana, we still have the same number of ministers in place. We have the same number of CEOs in place. We have the same pattern of expenditure. And we see government living large on the taxes of the people. We've seen rather small businesses and medium-scale businesses run by young um, 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 people. For instance, my wife is into small-scale business. I mean, small-scale business. And they employ a number of people, a couple of people. Now, if the economy is strangled this way, it means that some people must be laid off or all of them may be laid off. Again, the taxes 
the tax burden is pushed on small businesses like that at the expense and, 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 and bigger uh, firms and national um, agencies are left off. And these are the agencies that have their CEOs being paid with the taxes of the people or of the small business person. So it is never fair. So government must be seen to be bearing the burden or to, to, be, to, be, to, be, to be taking its fair share of the burden. And then it should be seen to be uh, uh, um, streamlining or cutting down on cost of running the country. Again, there are long-term things we have to do. One is producing some of the things we import. Now, Christian, with so much imports in Africa, we end up sending away the little foreign exchange that we have to advanced countries in order to get some goods that we could have produced. Africa is, most African countries are net importers of food, despite the fact that they have huge arable lands. We have rivers running through this country and other countries in Africa, like DR Congo. Why should DR Congo import food? When the country is full of rivers that can be used to irrigate lands even in dry seasons. Why should Angola import food? When there are so many water bodies and irrigation potential, look at energy. We, we, we spend so much on energy when we can get cheap solar energy, sunshine all around the whole year. But we don't do that. So it's about time we also look at alternative ways of living and taking advantage of our environment. And by this, taking advantage doesn't mean environmental degradation. It simply means that using what we have to sustainably support ourselves. So in the long term, we should cut the unnecessary expenditure on the importation of food, especially food. And again, where some industries are doing well domestically, we should be able to encourage domestic consumption of their produce in order to cut down on import. By this, the money, the inflation. Now, Christian as it stands, so much city must be changed for dollars in order to import. This is bringing a lot of hardship to the poor people of the country. And even those doing well, currently, there's so much stress. So in the long term, production, the, the, the economies of Africa should look to production. There are so many things that we have comparative advantage if we should produce in Africa. We have growing youth. This is the youngest population in terms of, this is the youngest in terms of population, the youngest continent in terms of population. The median age is around 18 and 19 in Africa. And education has improved comparatively. It has really improved, which means that there is abundant pool of skilled labor that can be used in productive 
ventures for the progress of the continent. And in this case, Ghana. Mm -hmm. So I think that in the long term, in order not to come back to the IMF, this are some of the things we can look at. Fantastic. Um, one sub question that I'm totally intrigued by here is regarding the next generation of entrepreneurs who build these enterprises that you've described, which are export-based, import reduction, highly valuable, employ people, further economic growth, and then lead to the next generation of companies after that. Um, you mentioned a highly skilled slash increasingly educated uh, labor force in contrast to other regions. I'm wondering what is the current infrastructure that exists to support founders in Ghana? Um, where, where do they come from? I know, for example, the classic example in, say, the States is, oh, you know, someone went to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School and they kind of join some sort of financial firm and then they start something, right? Or in Silicon Valley, it's you go to Y Combinator, which is the accelerator, or you're backed by one of the venture capitalists. Um, not, I'm not just talking about the financing here, but I'm really talking about like where, where do the social clusters of people who are starting businesses and growing businesses kind of exist before they start those businesses? Mm, well, um, the Africa has got a lot of, for instance, in Ghana, we have very good schools. We have schools that produce the, the former UN General Secretary, Kofi Annan. Um, that is the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, located in the second largest city of Ghana, Kumasi, um, in central Ghana. And uh, we have the University of Ghana, uh, which is uh, the premier university in the country. And it has, for some years, topped um, a group of West African countries, uh, universities, when it comes to ranking, I mean, time ranking and other rankings, University of Ghana is one of the best you can find in West Africa. Now, the, 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 this, uh, and then we have the Cape Coast University and other universities in Ghana that are public universities, mainly the public universities are doing very well, and they produce the elites, a lot of the elites. When you go to um, the global North countries like um, US, Canada, Europe, you find so many Ghanaians who were produced from these universities doing very well there. Back home, these are the people who form the elite class and they do very well. Um, and there are other institutions like polytechnics that produce technical people who are very good in the industries. Uh, we also have um, the secondary level technical education that gives skills to people. Over the years, we have downplayed that particular sector, but now there, there is some consciousness that we have to revive the secondary technical education sector in order to, I mean, build a strong and very uh, robust um, working class for 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 the for the, for, for the country. Uh, often, we have cited the German um, system, where a lot of people have technical skills uh, in a more social democratic country where government and private sector play roles together in order to um, help the system survive. So this is, this is, this is, these are some of the things that um, uh, we look at in terms of infrastructure. Now, coming to physical infrastructure in terms of roads, hospitals, and other things. Now, many countries in Africa are doing well in that respect. Ghana, for instance, when you come to West Africa, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, and to some extent, Senegal are doing very well in this respect. The continent is planning, and we keep planning, um, on getting cross-country uh, uh, roads 
that is highways connecting various countries. And Christian, this is another very important point. In order to come out of, from this cyclical economic debacles, there is a need for Africans to trade among themselves. The challenge, however, is the kind of goods that we produce. We tend to produce mostly primary goods. So people ask that if you all produce primary goods, how do you trade? But uh, funny enough, or interestingly enough, we have um, industries coming up, middle, I mean, small-scale industries coming up. And so we can start from there by trading amongst ourselves. And when we do that, at least we can have collective infrastructure development. For instance, we had the West African gas pipeline in the 2000s, the West African gas pipeline running from Nigeria to Cote d'Ivoire. And this helped in um, fueling a lot of projects around the thermal plants and all that. These pipes were laid beneath the sea. And there's a, a, a number of countries that came together to do, to do that. We've also had the ECOWAS hi Highway that was built in the 80s and the 90s. So we, with time, fiscal infrastructure, as well as the educational, the health services, the educational services and other things, has been robust. Christian, in fact, Africa has improved. The only thing left is responsible leadership. Okay, fantastic. In that case, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I have a question that intersects two of my interests and yours as well, okay. Um, okay. which is, we spent a lot of time in our previous conversation and hopefully we'll get a chance to touch upon the general theory of you know, okay. leadership later on. Mm. But what yeah. I'm very curious about your thoughts on are who has been or who have been the figures and what are the ideas that they've represented when it comes to people who have been leaders specifically when it comes to industrial policy in Ghana? Um, if you could share a bit of history on that, that would be fantastic. But I'm curious about the folks who have been, you know, pioneers or even the pieces of legislation that may have kind of like unlocked new parts of industry um, that have enabled the industrial development to take place in certain ways or to not take place. Like who, who, who are the leaders that kind of come to mind there and what's made them good or bad? Or like, is there a gap there? I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on leadership in industrial policy in Ghana? Oh, okay. Um, so far, I will grant some um, um, credit to the private sector in Ghana. Um, Ghana's private sector has been very robust. They've, uh, we've had a lot of um, industry players coming up, people who have invested in some ventures like mining, um, like uh, production, uh, media, and all that. We've had Ghanaians investing heavily in that, that's the private sector. But on the political leadership, I think that every leader that has been in charge of Ghana has, in a way, promoted industry. Um, if we start with the Fourth Republic, we talk of um, Jerry John Rawlings, the first president of the Fourth Republic. Uh, you can talk about John Ejekunku who succeeded Jerry John Rawlings. You talk about John Evans Atamos, um, John Mahama, and then the current president has also promoted industry. Because one thing is that um, government doing this alone often put pressure on it. Because if you are the largest employer, then what? You need the private sector to play role. So they have all, in fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exempt anyone from this. They have all promoted private sector development and industry. Uh, for instance, um, under John Mahama, we saw uh, the pharmaceutical industry being pushed by government. In fact, a lot of money, state money was pumped into the pharmaceutical 
industry where he wanted Ghanaians to produce our own drugs and medicines in order to uh, support the health sector. We have a very wide health insurance policy in Ghana. I mean, program in Ghana where uh, basic health is, is insured. So you buy your insurance and then for, 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 for a number of years, you are catered for. Now, at the time, the pharmaceutical industry was really struggling. So the president stepped in and, I mean, helped it survive by pumping money into it so that they keep their jobs and all that. Now, currently, the current president encouraged um, car manufacturing firms like Volkswagen and other companies to have plants in Ghana. So far, we've not seen much of that happening, but I think that with time, since it has started, with time, something may, may, may change. Again, in with respect to uh, production, we've had Ghanaians investing in small-scale production, like plastics, um, textiles, um, clothing making, and what have you. So we and 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 most importantly, we find young people really doing going into such 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 areas, and we we often see so many success stories coming up. What is left is for the political leadership to actually give a very positive macroeconomic stability for these industrial players to survive. Because we are beginning to see Ghanaians who would like to invest their uh, money in other countries other than Ghana. Because then if home cannot give me a breathing space, then I'll join other countries or I'll be in another country to survive. So these are the things that we, we, we have to learn. So the private sector and the politicians have made efforts over time. One, one thing you mentioned there was uh, joint ventures. Um, are there any kind of uh, specific joint ventures you find interesting as case studies of um, bringing in foreign capital, foreign talent that's kind of then kind of leaked out mm. into new mm. ideas within Ghana? Mm. Yeah, so in Ghana, we have something we call a PPP. Public-Private Partnership. Mm -hmm. Now, um, under the previous government, that is uh, from 2013 and 2016, of which I was part of, I witnessed uh, a couple of meetings. Um, there was actually a ministry responsible for PPP, a whole ministry responsible for PPP. Now, um, the uh, Ghanaian law um, does not allow foreign companies to invest 100%. I mean, to own, have 100% ownership. So mm -hmm. there should be at least 30% ownership uh, domestic. So if you're a foreigner and you wanted to invest in Ghana, you needed some 30%, at least 30% partnership from a domestic investor. So it could be the government or private individuals. So governments, I mean, the, the, the legal structure of investment in Ghana actually encourages partnership. And there are so many of them across 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 the country. So mining sector, um, with the, the oil and gas sector, where Ghanaians have partnered foreign firms to uh, um, um, in joint ventures to, to, to engage in economic activities. We've also had um, other companies, like telecommunication companies and all that, who have had partners and, 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 and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um... In terms of the next generation of joint ventures, do you think there's, f firstly, I, I, 
in terms of how the folks who are in joint ventures now are responding to what is, seems to be kind of the macro instability in Ghana, um, do, do you have any kind of tap onto what the sentiment is there slash what lobbying power they may have to, you know, have pushed for better public finance policies? Like, like what, what is the interaction between not just civil society and the government, but also these big businesses in helping steward government policy such that it's effective for the businesses in the longer term? Mm. Um, in Ghana, the private sector has so much power in that, um, um, in a way, they, they, are, they, they are financiers of political parties. At the same time, they put pressure on government when things are not going well. So often, they interact with government. We've, we've had a number of uh, instances where the uh, private sector um, has to issue public um, um, admonishment to the government that things are not going well, taxes are too high, um, the economy is too bad, macroeconomic stability is not working and all that. So when this happens, governments often engage them because without them, it is very difficult for you to survive. For instance, not long ago, um, import duties that was so high that it uh, results in very serious inflationary problems for, 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 for businessmen was, 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 was um, actually a, a meeting was organized over that, even though it has not improved, but there seemed to be some engagement with government. And that is what uh, has been the case over the time. And uh, yeah, previous governments have also engaged uh, private sector. So the private sector has a lot of influence. Um, however, um, like any other African state, politicians will continue to be very dominant. And um, sometimes politicians themselves are businessmen. And so uh, there's also a gray area between what, who is listening to whom, because uh, the politician himself is a businessman. So when businessmen are talking, the politician is talking as well. So sometimes it's, it's blurry. But by and large, we see a lot of dialogue, a lot of um, lobbying, and a lot of um, uh, pressure put on government uh, uh, by this uh, interest. Okay, fantastic. And I guess we'll move on to kind of the final question. This has been a fantastic okay. uh, uh, conversation thus far, um, which is a topic we both care about deeply, which is obviously the next generation of leadership and the way in which they kind of cultivate themselves, educate themselves and make better decisions in setting direction and stewarding the institutions that they either build or that they kind of uh, run. And I'm wondering, who, what do you think the kind of future of leadership will look like in Ghana? Mm. And what are some ways in which it can be better? Mm. Um, um, so far, uh, we see a lot of young people in politics in Ghana. Uh, we also see people who have lived outside the country trying to come back home. And when they are not coming back home, they are using um, the internet or the social media to address people back home. So we find a lot of people in uh, uh, using TikTok, using um, uh, Facebook um, and um, uh, YouTube and addressing some issues back home and who have also shown interest in coming back home to help build the state. Now, um, th these groups are often elites. These are people who are educated. Some of them are related to uh, politicians. Um, um, others are just uh, first-generation educated people who have lived outside or are in Ghana, and they have all shown interest in leading. Now, the uh, fantastic thing about this is that these people are more technologically inclined, and they have a lot of information and, and, and on how they want the country to go. And so 
um, I foresee superior ideas coming up with the next generation of leaders that uh, Ghana and for that matter Africa would have because you find uh, these, these these young people reading everywhere. For instance, I sit in in, my, in in the corner of my room and take my phone, and I'm able to access so much information, and um, I'm able to talk to you, and by talking to you, I'm expressing myself, and I I think that um, <clears throat> it all leads to what the kind of leadership that we want, because I can't be sitting here and be talking about um, leaner government and responsible government when I don't mean to 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 to, to do it. So definitely. I, I talk about it because I wouldn't want to see it in the next generation of leadership mm -hmm. of which I may be part. So um, uh, um, we, 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 we are looking forward to a very positive uh, future. However, as it stands now, we cannot sit aloof and watch the older generation um, degen degenerate before we take over. So we have to help. Um, to bring out where we cannot um, physically be present, we can at least contribute our quota by uh, way of opinion and uh, suggestions and, 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 and do so constructively and not just by way of just criticizing for criticizing sake. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, on that note, Fidel, um, thank you so much for making the time for this conversation. If there's anything you want to time. share with um, listeners here, feel free to. If not, we can kind of wrap this up. All right, all right. Thank you, Rishan. Um, I'm I'm very happy to 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 speak to you on this, and uh, I wish your followers so well, and that they should keep uh, following you. You are a young man who is very much interested in Africa, and I think that when people follow you, they will get a lot that they need to uh, know on 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 the continent. Thank you. Deeply appreciated. Take care, man. All right. All right.